Los Angeles is getting close to a mask mandate. San Diego, not yet. If we got to that high tier, maybe then we'd see some more conversations about bringing masking back. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Is San Diego prepared to handle monkeypox? The county health department has a unit that is looking for cases and have been in contact with us about being prepared to provide care for people who need it. There's another legal twist to the 2011 Coronado Mansion death of Rebecca Zahau. And our Port of Entry podcast returns with a focus on Baja's efforts to legalize marijuana. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. How close is San Diego to a new indoor mask mandate? County officials say we're not there yet, but Southern California in general is getting very close. Rising rates of infection from the COVID variant BA5 are pushing up hospitalizations. Public health officials in Los Angeles say a new indoor mask mandate could go into effect there by the end of the month. And many infectious disease specialists say it's probably a good idea to mask up now, even before any mandate goes into effect. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Hi, Matt. Hey, Maureen. Always good to be here with you. Is there a specific level of infection that would trigger a mask mandate in San Diego? Short answer, no. Under the governor's smarter plan, this was, you know, last year in the summer when we talked about reopening and, and getting back to a sense of normalcy. Um, it talked about these triggers that might come, whether it be, um, and it may not be a whole statewide thing. You know, we had a statewide mask mandate, but they want to look at region by region. You know, if they see cases going up in one place, they may do some targeted interventions, they say. So there's real no specific bar. Um, something else to keep in mind, there is like the CDC transmission tracker a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, San Diego was in the news from going to the from the low tier to the medium tier um that's where they you know recommend masking uh and, and the high tier though we're not there uh, yet um you know that that's when they really recommend wearing masks especially in indoor places so if we got to that high tier maybe then we'd see some more conversations about bringing masking back and that's based on hospitalization numbers so are they continuing to go up in san diego they are continuing to rise. You know, uh, a couple months ago, even a few weeks ago, uh, we were in the hundreds of COVID-related hospitalizations in San Diego, but it's slowly been ticking upward. Uh, we're at today, Monday, at 364 people hospitalized, um, and that's according to state data with 43 people in the ICU. Those numbers have been increasing. Now, I will note, it's a far cry from where we were like in the winter surges, the last couple winter surges we had. Um, you know, some of those, we had about 1,800 uh, San Diegans hospitalized. That's when, you know, the system was being pushed to the brink, so to speak. We're nowhere near that, but it is concerning for health officials to see, you know, sort of this sustained increase. And we don't have really good information anymore about the number of new cases. And that's because of home testing, isn't it? 
Yeah, Maureen, that's exactly right. So we know that we're seeing, you know, and so if you go get tested and you get an official PCR test, that's a lab test. Those are the ones that the county counts uh, and, and the state. And we know that we're averaging over a thousand infections per day, pretty much, um, which is not good. That's when we were kind of coming off of the winter surge, seeing those numbers. But yeah, well, you know, we're hearing from officials like over at UC San Diego Health. They estimate that 90% of the cases that are being found are being done through at-home testing. So that would mean that there's a lot more spread going on out here. But if I, I imagine there's a lot of people listening right now, especially over the last week. I know at least like four people that have tested positive for COVID um, and all those people were using at-home tests. So they're not being counted, but officials are definitely aware that the spread is out there and they're taking that into consideration when they think about these decisions. What is the amount of virus in our wastewater? What is that saying about the spread in San Diego? That's another good indicator. It's been used uh, sort of to see maybe what's coming. We know that the wastewater data, it shows that the latest numbers show that it might be leveling off or coming down from some of the plants. It is pretty on track with uh, what we're seeing in terms of cases. Now, you might say, well, it's coming down, the wastewater maybe, but we're still seeing cases. There's a little bit of a delay factor in that we see the wastewater numbers first and the cases second. Um, interesting though about the wastewater, we touched on you know these highly infectious uh, variants, BA5 and BA4. Uh, we know from the latest wastewater data, looking at it right now, it looks like BA5 makes up 64% of what they're seeing and then BA4, 13%. So that's above 70% that we're seeing with these new, uh, very infectious variants. Matt, if a new mask mandate were to go into effect, where would it kick in? What would be affected? So we can kind of like opine here a little bit. We know that the health officials say that they've been following the science. You know, the most recent mask mandate uh, was indoors only. We know that uh, indoors when there's poor ventilation, that's when COVID can spread like wildfire. And especially these new variants, BA5, BA4, um, a lot of people, a lot of doctors I've talked to who have, you know, uh, missed the COVID bug, so to speak, throughout the whole pandemic, uh, they're starting to get COVID. And there's no way that we know if it's going to be BA4, BA5. But I think if we do see a return to masking, it's going to have have some common sense to it in terms of, you know, we know that outdoors, the risk can be a lot lower. Now, when you talk about big events like a Padre game or like a big rave, uh, we know that can be higher risk. But uh, I think if we do see it come back, it would be targeted. So it would be, you know, indoor masking as, as I think maybe where we could be heading. And besides being the most contagious, BA4 and BA5 are also likely to evade natural and vaccine immunity. Isn't that right? Yes, that is correct, Maureen. And, you know, we're hearing from some doctors that they're seeing people get reinfected uh, in a matter of weeks. Um, so some of this protection, you know, people thought, you know, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted. And I also, I recently got COVID. Well, we're seeing that these new strains as the virus, you know, gets smarter, it's easier to evade uh, some of the vaccines we have. Now we know that on the horizon, that there is going to be an Omicron specific vaccine coming out in the fall, but health officials are saying that you shouldn't necessarily wait for that if you're not vaccinated or boosted. Now, one piece of good news is that if you test positive for COVID, you may be able to get treatment now from your pharmacist. Tell us about that. It's supposed to become just sort of regular, you know, like you get sick and you go to your doctor or you go to your pharmacy and you get the COVID treatment. Um, and we know that these treatments, there's, you know, there's a couple of them. There's Paxlovid that we also have monoclonal antibodies. Paxlovid is like a pill that you take. You can just get it at a pharmacy. Uh, monoclonal antibodies, you can go in for an infusion. Um, and these are all geared toward keeping people out of the hospital. Now, we know that the vaccines are geared toward that, but those who might be at higher risk uh, after they get infected, something to keep in mind too, it's these treatments have to be used within the first few few days of symptoms. So if you get infected, you have symptoms, especially for those who are at higher risk, they're saying call your doctor or even call the county. You can go to one of these mark sites and get some of these treatments because they know they work and they don't want people to get sicker. So you get COVID, 
call your doctor, get the treatment. That's what they want to preach. Matt, is there a concern that if a new mask mandate were put into effect in San Diego, it wouldn't be followed or enforced? I think that's always a concern for health officials. You know, there's always this talk about COVID fatigue. Um, and, and we hear that quite a bit, even uh, when some of the restrictions were coming down, you know, people saying, what are we supposed to do? Close everything down again. Uh, but the, the sort of challenging part is we know the virus isn't going away. And what it's doing is it's getting smarter in terms of evading our immunity. It's 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 replicating with these variants that are more contagious. Um, so I, I think what you're seeing right now is you know it's 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 kind of interesting. Like you go to a, a Padre game or something like that, or or if you go to a restaurant, you see some people with masks, but it's definitely the minority. So if they were to bring back masking, it would be interesting to see. And you know, with when masking comes, you kind of have this interesting dynamic where. It puts business owners in a weird uh, position where they don't want to drive away business, but they also want to protect themselves and their employees. Uh, so I think it would be interesting if we had a return to mandated masking in San Diego. And I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Huffman. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. As San Diego struggles with yet another spike in coronavirus cases, another virus has also been catching the attention of health officials in recent months. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, there have been more than 750 confirmed cases of monkeypox in the U.S., with more than 130 of those in California. While only a small number of cases have been reported in San Diego, case numbers are growing in Europe and in other parts of the U.S., so how prepared is San Diego for monkeypox? Joining me is an infectious disease expert from UC San Diego and UC San Diego Health, Dr. Robert Schooley. Dr. Schooley, welcome. Thank you. So to date, the majority of monkeypox cases in California have not been in San Diego County, and there is currently no local community spread of the virus that we know of. So how big of a concern is this today for local health officials? Well, I think local health officials are watching very carefully what's going on. The county health department has a unit that is looking for cases and have been in contact with us about being prepared to provide care for people who need it. So I think preparations are well underway. And though we are talking about viruses here, we should note monkeypox is very different from COVID. Can you talk more about monkeypox? I mean, how does it work and how is it transmitted? So monkeypox is a virus that uh, is in the same general family as smallpox. It's by no means uh, even close to as serious as smallpox. It's it's a virus in the so-called orthopox family. Uh, these are viruses that particularly affect the skin and that are uh, spread primarily by close contact skin to skin, but can be spread uh, just by close contact with breathing, although, again, uh, not even close to the transmission efficiency of, say, coronaviruses. The viruses are a bit more hardy than some of the other uh, viruses we've been dealing with, like coronaviruses, that um, in the sense that they can stick around on clothing and bedclothes uh, after people who have been in them with monkeypox uh, have, have left. So we have to be careful about making sure that um, you don't come in contact with clothing and other surfaces that people with monkeypox might have shed the virus on. It generally, though, is not fatal, right? It's rarely fatal. Uh, the fatality rate is less than 1%. Uh, it is um, more of a problem for people whose cellular immunity uh, is damaged. This would be people who are pregnant, for example, people who have severe T-cell immune defects. You wouldn't want a transplant recipient to get it or someone with advanced HIV disease. You uh, would not want it to um, someone with lymphoma undergoing chemotherapy to get it. 
It can also cause uh, scarring uh, and uh, has caused uh, blindness uh, when it involves the eyes. So it's not a trivial virus, although fatality is rare. And what are local health officials doing to prepare in case we do see an uptick here? Well, local health officials have an active monitoring uh, system in place to gather specimens to make the diagnosis. They've been in contact with UCSD Health uh, for us to provide care and evaluate people who need to be seen medically. In the current 2022 outbreak of the virus, monkeypox has impacted gay and bisexual men disproportionately. Can you explain why that is? Well, it can affect anybody who comes in contact with someone who has uh, skin lesions. Uh, It has just found its way into that population. And um, if there are gatherings of large numbers of people that are in close contact um, of any kind, the virus can take advantage of that. And that's how it began to spread first in Europe and then in the U.S. Uh, But by no means has the uh, outbreak been confined only to gay people. And what treatments are available for monkeypox? There are two drugs that are active. One of them uh, is called uh, T-pox, uh, and it's in the process of being made available uh, through the County Health Department and UCSD. Uh, there's another drug called Brensadafavir, which uh, is not yet available for this uh, virus, but is active against smallpox, and we presume would be available, would be active against uh, monkeypox. Uh, that drug is one that was developed uh, here by Dr. Carl Hostetler uh, at UC San Diego. There have been reports of vaccine shortages in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Uh, Does San Diego have a sufficient supply of monkeypox vaccines? Well, there are two different uh, vaccines that uh, are uh, effective against uh, monkeypox. One of them is called ACAM2000. There's plenty of that vaccine around. It's a vaccine that's closer to the smallpox uh, vaccine and a little bit more likely to cause side effects if people use it. The other vaccine, which is called the JYNNEOS vaccine, is a vaccine that's a little bit less likely to cause side effects, uh, is safer to give to people with uh, defects in immunity. And there is a bit of a shortage of it, although uh, new supplies are coming relatively quickly. What lessons have health officials learned from the coronavirus pandemic that you see being used uh, to prepare for monkeypox? I think it's uh, important to, as Wayne Gretzky used to say, to try to skate to where the puck is going to be rather than where it is and to keep an eye on how the virus is spreading. Uh, We need to be careful to realize that this virus can spread to anyone who comes in close contact to someone who has monkeypox. So we need to be careful not to restrict case finding only to people who are presumed to be at risk, at primary risk. In other words, we know that the virus has disproportionately affected people uh, in the MSM community, but we have to be very careful not to assume that someone who comes in with a fever and Skin lesions can't have monkeypox because they're not in uh, that community. Uh, We made that mistake uh, with coronavirus when initially the CDC didn't want to investigate any cases of people who hadn't come from China recently. And uh, once the virus begins to spread in the community, you have to have a wide net uh, to be sure that you're catching all the cases. I think we learned that from coronavirus, and I think that's one of the mistakes we won't make with this one. And you mentioned MSM. Can you explain what that is? MSM is men who have sex with men. Uh, It's a terminology that we now use to uh, refer to the male uh, homosexual and bisexual population. Do you think community awareness of the virus is where it needs to be right now? I think a lot of work is uh, being done uh, in uh, broadly uh, around the community, particularly in the communities at greatest risk to have people who uh, to have people be aware of what's going on and to be looking for cases. 
So I don't think we're missing a lot of cases here in San Diego at present. And I think if the cases did begin to show up, particularly in the communities that have been at greatest risk elsewhere, we'd pick up uh, the cases pretty quickly. So ultimately, you think San Diego is prepared if, if there is an uptick? I think we are right now. We right now are kind of behind the curve, which is great. It gives us a chance to learn from what's going on elsewhere. Uh, and we have a very uh, capable health department and uh, a very cohesive uh, community that uh, is looking for these cases. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Schooley, an infectious disease expert at UC San Diego and UC San Diego Health. Dr. Schooley, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Good luck to you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The true crime mystery of the 2011 death of Rebecca Zahau in Coronado took another turn late last week. The Zahau family dropped its lawsuit requesting unreleased documents about the case from the San Diego Sheriff's Department. Instead, family members say they are now preparing to formally request the medical examiner to reclassify the death of 32-year-old Rebecca Zahau from suicide to homicide or undetermined. Zahau's nude, bound body was found hanging from a balcony of the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado, just days after an accident that claimed the life of her boyfriend's six-year-old son. Joining me is San Diego true crime writer Caitlin Rother. She is the author of the book Death on Ocean Boulevard Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. And Caitlin, welcome. Thank you for having me on. The strange facts surrounding this case have led to continuing questions about the finding of suicide. Give us, if you can, a brief run-through of the case, including things like the writing found near the body and how her body was discovered. Well, today is actually the 11th anniversary of the uh, day that Max Shacknai, uh, Jonah Shacknai's son, and Jonah was Rebecca's boyfriend, he fell from an interior balcony and Rebecca Zahau's body was found two days later outside, naked, bound, and gagged by Jonah's brother, Adam. So upstairs in the bedroom where the hanging rope was anchored was a note that, sh that said, she saved him, can you save her? And down below, um, Adam Shacknai claimed that he came out of the guest room sorry, the guest house in the, in the courtyard, found her hanging, got a knife and a table, pulled it over, and then cut her down. And, and meanwhile, all of this was being documented by this 911 call. 
Uh, several months later, there was, a, you know, an investigation that um, the sheriff's department ruled her death a suicide. And the Zahao family, to this day, still insists that she was murdered. A civil jury uh, agreed with them in 2018 and found Adam Shacknai responsible for Rebecca's death. Right. And uh, he continues to deny he had anything to do with it. Why was he suspected in the first place? Well, he was the only known person on the property besides Rebecca, because as I said, Max Shack and I had this horrible, tragic fall, and they were just coming back from the hospital. Jonah was at the hospital, Max's mother was at the hospital, and so Adam was the only person who who was on the property who could have killed Rebecca Zahau if she was in fact murdered. I haven't taken a position on that because there are just too many unanswered questions. Well, after Adam Shacknai was found civilly responsible, the Sheriff's Department opened up another inquiry into Zhao's death and once again came to the conclusion of suicide. And that's when the Zhao family sued for investigation documents they say they hadn't received. What is it they were looking for? Well, they were looking for uh, written instructions that that Sheriff Gore gave to this, quote, independent, unquote, panel of detectives who did not reopen the investigation. And that's very important. They did not reopen it. They did not investigate anything new. They didn't do any new interviews or re-interview anyone. All they did was effectively look at trial transcripts and, uh, you know, discussions, theories that came out during the trial. But as far as they were concerned, there was no new evidence, only a new interpretation of existing evidence. Therefore, they just reconfirmed their suicide findings. And the Zahows believe there's more, more to it and there's corruption going on. So they were using this lawsuit to try to get investigative documents because they were hoping to find some documents, texts, emails, internal correspondence, notes from roundtable meetings, um, you know, workbooks, secondary notebooks, where, which were not official um, investigative reports that maybe they could show that the sheriff had been hiding suspicions or other evidence that went toward, toward murder. They were also looking for Adam Shacknai's phone records in particular and the written instructions that Gore gave to the review team, however, he said this last week that there were never any written instructions. He only did it verbally and orally by phone. When the family files the petition for a reclassification of Rebecca's death, they say that they have new evidence to show. They claim that they're going to submit new evidence. What are they claiming? Uh, based on reports from last week, when Keith Greer was on TV, he pointed to a few areas which came out during the trial already um, and the sheriff's department didn't believe it was new evidence at the time. But for for example, Adam Shacknai testified that he loosened the bindings around Rebecca's wrist so he could take her pulse. He said that on the stand and I heard him. Um, they're claiming, well, Dr. Lucas, the pathologist who did the autopsy, said that he said it was suicide because the bindings were loose. And they're saying, well, then he didn't know that Adam volunteered that he had loosened them himself. So that's one thing. Another area that they claim is new evidence is the pattern of lividity, which is when the heart stops pumping, there's purplish tint to the areas where the blood pools due to gravity. They're claiming she was tied up, strangled, hit over the head, 
and killed before she was lowered over the balcony because her legs were bent, her knees were bent when she was found by the police. So Adam Shackney is the only person who ever saw her hanging. The police came, she was already cut down and on the grass. So the pattern of lividity means that her knees were bent and the pattern of lividity did not fit somebody who had been hanging straight down. It fit more a horizontal pattern as someone who'd been, you know, lying on the grass. Now, before this lawsuit was dismissed, the judge in the case hinted that what the Zahao family really wanted was a new San Diego sheriff. How do San Diego's two candidates for sheriff stand on the issue of doing a new investigation into the death of Rebecca Zahao? Well, I haven't spoken personally to either one because Kelly Martinez, who is running for sheriff, um, and she is now the undersheriff, has um, declined to speak to me. Um, I, I did see NBC7 reported that before the primary election, John Hemmerling, who is the Republican candidate, even though it's a nonpartisan race, he said he was willing to reopen the, the criminal case. And Kelly Martinez uh, said that she was open to an outside agency investigating Zahao's death. I need to say that these statements were made before the primary election when Dave Myers was still running against them. And he was the one who has been saying all along that he would reopen the criminal case if he was elected. But now that he's out of the race, I'm not sure whether these two candidates will continue to maintain the same position if nobody's pressuring them to. Well, we'll continue to cover this, and I know that you will. I've been speaking with San Diego true crime writer Caitlin Rother. She's the author of the book Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. And Caitlin, thank you. Thank you. People who've served time in prison often face big obstacles when they get out. But there are several programs in San Diego County that aim to help make that transition easier. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado shows us one that's using gardening to grow more than plants. Tomatoes are grown back there. We have all types of vegetables. There's nurseries and expansive gardens in places you might not expect. The men's East Mesa re-entry facility in Otay Mesa. And at the women's Las Colinas detention re-entry program in Santee. So right now we're just cleaning up off the dead stuff, off of the flowers. The people caring for the plants and vegetables are inmates with less than six months left in their sentences. Here, they're just students learning the art of horticulture, landscaping, and farm-to-table sustainable growing. Yeah, I'm going to plant them, so you see how they root it. Amazing, right? 38-year-old Pemberton Tran has become quite the expert in succulents. I'll cut the end of the other leaf, and then I'll just repot it. And 20-year-old Brianna from the Coachella Valley now considers herself a farmer. Never would I have thought, but I'm very glad that I am. <laughs> Francisco Quinteros is a supervising correctional counselor with the program. He says they're growing more than plants here. They're helping people grow. We're investing in people here. So it's just really rewarding knowing that, you know, we're helping individuals that never got a chance. Um, 
in life, and now we're you know equipping them with the proper tools necessary to not come back. Tran can't believe he's become so skilled in such a short amount of time. This peaceful greenhouse is a sharp contrast from a life he's healing from. No, this is all new to me, you know. So I'm a, a combat veteran, and I came back feeling suicidal. I'm feeling really, really down and out, you know, and I, I felt like no one understood. This program has been... Um, pretty much a safe haven for me. This program is a partnership between the San Diego Sheriff's Department and the San Diego County Parks and Recreation Department. When inmates complete the program, not only will they have the know-how and certification, they will also be given connections to land a job. Tran says in an odd way, it's given him freedom, not just in here, but on the outside too. This is uh, an option. When I step out that door, at least I know I have this as an avenue of seeking employment. Brianna says she plans to take what she's learned and give back to her community. We have a community garden in Desert Hot Springs. I don't know how it's doing right now, but I would really love to do something and show what I learned. Her favorite thing to grow? I really like the flowers because the flowers are super resilient. They grow and they die and they just come right back and they're just... I love them. A perfect metaphor for second chances. Exactly what this program provides. When you fall, you should always get back up. And I think that getting back up isn't just, oh, okay, I'm going to try it again. No, it's you're going to find something that works for you. And I think that this works for me because it makes me mindful and it makes me genuinely happy. Over at East Mesa, Tran says back in the day, his mom would try to get him to garden with her. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I, I got stuff I need to do. But now he's looking forward to giving her a hug and a hand in the backyard. I only have my mom left. You know, my dad passed away last year. And um, I think this experience right here um, was meant to be, you know, for so when I get released, I'd be able to spend more quality time with her, you know, and um, maybe I could teach her a few things <laughs> or she could teach me a few things, you know. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. The suicide crisis among military veterans is a well-documented and deeply complicated phenomenon. This same issue among active duty servicemen, however, is increasing at an alarming rate in recent years. While official military statistics and active duty suicides offer little insight into the issue, experts say that the problem may lie in the increasingly high-pressure demands of soldiers and the changing face of modern warfare. Joining me with more is Voice of San Diego reporter Will Hunsbury. Will, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jade. In your article, you profiled a young man named Kellen Waddellin, who was in the Navy and died by suicide just before his 23rd birthday. Tell me a bit about him. Yeah, Kellen was a really smart young man. Um, he had done really well in high school. You know, he was one of those people who kind of make it look effortless to be good at sports, to be friends with all the different groups of people in high school, um, to, to do well in his grades. And um, Kellen had also scored nearly perfect on one of the military aptitude tests, the ASVAB. And so when he graduated high school, 
you know, his parents who spent a lot of time talking to me about him, they say he both really wanted adventure, but he also wanted to set himself up for the future. So he knew he had scored perfect on the ASVAB. He went to see a Navy recruiter and the Navy recruiter ultimately um, offered him a gig um, doing um, ultimately offered him a gig as a cryptologic technician. And so these are the people that kind of work in cyber warfare in the Navy. So he was in the battle space of the future. And, and you point out that troops in the battle space of the future, like Wadalet, for example, do not face physical harm, but they experience acute psychological strain that military leaders are just now coming to better understand. So what types of psychological strain are troops experiencing? So these people aren't fighting with their hands and with guns on the ground, but their job is very vital to security. One internal Department of Defense report found that stress among these people doing cyber warfare um, is common, persistent, and disabling. So the psychological strain that these troops are um, facing is, seems to be direly affecting their mental health. And in the article that you wrote, you mentioned warrior culture, and it's something that's behind much of the psychological strain as well. Can you explain what that is and how it fits into the military? In a warrior culture, we ask people to do this to defend the country on our behalf. And so trying to insert into that culture this idea that, oh, we're going to like take really great care of our mental health. And we're going to say when something's wrong, there's a kind of like rubber meets road thing going on there because the overarching message to troops is like, if you can suck it up and you can do your job, that's what we need you to do for your brothers and sisters and for your country. And so all of this leads us to a dark phenomenon by which suicide rates among active duty men aged 17 to 25 are rising. What did you find out there? I tried to investigate this from a couple of different angles, Jade. Um, I looked into local death certificates, but they didn't tell me a lot. I did see that deaths among young new recruits did rise in 2020. But what I had to do to get at the rate was to um, do a Freedom of Information Act request to get numbers from across the whole military. And what I was able to do was kind of isolate young men aged 17 to 25 and then figure out what the suicide rate was there. And I found that it was 45.6 per 100,000 in 2020, which is almost double the rate for the same age group among civilians. And you know, this is a problem that's kind of been flying under the radar because what the military reports is the age and gender adjusted suicide rate for the whole military. And when you look at that, it's pretty comparable to the U.S. population. If not, it is a little higher, actually, but it's comparable. But, you know, when we when we drill down on this subgroup of these young new recruits, for whatever reason, and it's very difficult to pinpoint, they are at really high risk. So what's been the challenge to addressing this problem? I think it comes back to that warrior culture, right? You know, one of the people I talked to was Kellen Waddell, its cousin. His name's Matt Donahoe, and he also served in the Marine Corps. And one of the things he told me is, you know, you get trained from day one to kind of bottle up your emotions and keep pushing. And so bottling up your emotions is not the correct strategy to dealing with your emotions, right? So there's that one cultural problem. 
But then even when people do ask for help, there can be a problem. I think, you know, at this point, the military knows this is an issue. If you say you're considering harming yourself, all these things are going to spring into action. You're probably certainly going to see mental health professionals. You're going to be on watch by the other people in your team. But let's just say you're like really stressed out. Several of the people I talked to said that commanding officers aren't always keen to give their troops the time they need to get the treatment they need. And, you know, as you write, often the values of warrior culture are at odds with mental health needs. Uh, What has the military said in response to this? You know, they told me a few things. Uh, You know, they, they track suicides every year, kind of at the global level, and they put out a report every year. And um, in fact, they are pouring money into this, hundreds of millions of dollars, even as the problem gets worse. What they most often say is that they're confused by the the rise in suicides and they find it hard to explain. You know, um, when the most recent annual suicide report came out, that's what the Pentagon press secretary said, you know, each Suicide is really complicated and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this. You know, that makes sense because historically the suicide rate for active duty troops has been much lower than civilians. Troops get screened before they're allowed to join up, right? They get screened for physical fitness. They get screened for mental fitness. And so for the longest time, you know, they weren't experiencing the same mental health problems as the rest of the general population, it seemed. But now, you know, we have rising suicides in the rest of the country, and we have that meeting this warrior culture mindset, and something is going wrong when those two things meet. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Will Huntsbury. Will, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. And if you or someone you know might be considering suicide, please call 800-273-8255. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The KPBS podcast Port of Entry is back with new episodes. This time with a series of stories on how the border can change minds. Cannabis on the border is nothing new. For decades, weed moved north from Mexico into the U.S., an illegal trade that fueled drug cartels and drug violence. But with the legalization of recreational and medicinal cannabis in California and other U.S. states, all of that has changed. In this episode, Natalie Gonzalez and Alan Lilienthal profile Tijuana politician and activist Juan Carlos Guerrero, who was pushing for the legalization of cannabis in Baja. Here's Natalie. When Juan Carlos came back to Tijuana in 2018, he realized the cannabis industry was just starting to emerge here, and he saw this as an opportunity to start doing something that he knew. That's when I opened my eyes that I already know about plants. I already know I have greenhouses. I, I wanted to professionalize myself as a farmer in, in cannabis cultivation. And yeah, I, I came back to Tijuana knowing a lot, knowing that I, that I had a lot more 
to learn than what I have already learned, but knowing that I, I knew enough that I could make something happen. So he reached out to a couple of friends with a law firm in search of obtaining something called an amparo, which translates roughly into protection in English. So here's the thing. Let me explain this to you. While growing, selling, consuming cannabis is still technically illegal in Mexico, a Supreme Court ruling a few years ago fully decriminalized it. And then, in 2021, the federal Senate passed a general law to legalize cannabis. But since then, nothing has happened to actually put that law into practice. It is stalled, essentially held up, and many believe because of opposition from national political figures. So this amparo that Juan Carlos got is basically a protection granted by that Supreme Court ruling against any action that lesser authorities might take. Now, he has the legal right to grow and consume marijuana for his own personal use. The amparo means he can have weed and cannot be prosecuted. So after a long process of two years and a half, two years, a federal judge told the federal government that they have to let me, allow me to do what I, what I wanted, which was develop my personality through cannabis. I actually have it with me. I brought it to show it to you, the result of El Amparo, oh. which is... Wow. So what are you looking at? I'm looking at a legal document with a lot of words. numbers and words, and it kind of looks like hieroglyphics to me. Okay. Sembrar, cultivar, cosechar, preparar, poseer y transportar la adquisición legal de la semilla de cannabis. Sativa, indica y americana. <laughs> and guess what? Juan Carlos was the first person in Baja California to get this amparo. In fact, when the authorities issued it, everyone came out from the back office to check it out. And there was a lot of excitement, like, whoa, this is new. This is so cool. I said, you know what? Now I have the document. I have an official thing. I have to do something with this. And my first, the first idea that came to my head was show some plants publicly. And that's, that's how it happened. And I, I just sit in the middle of Revolución with the plants, with a jar full of weed, of actual flour, and just let people know about the plant. And yeah, this is the part where Juan Carlos gets arrested. And, well, he ended up in the state jail. Yep, and of course, he was not supposed to get arrested because he has this amparo, this legal permit we just talked about that allows him to be in possession of cannabis. So his arrest was pretty much illegal. Pretty much. But anyway, he was put inside a cell with like 15 drug addicts. And it was, it was people that have a serious problem with addiction, which I, I do believe they, they don't belong in jail. They belong in a... Rehabilitation facility or something like that. But don't worry about him too much because eventually he was moved to another cell with different people. Yep, with murderers and robbers. Oh, that sounds way more chill. I'm Super so glad. safe. I'm so happy for him. I get to the new jail, I lay on the floor, I try to sleep, and one, two, three hours, half an hour, I don't know. After that, the guy that was next to, to me, another guy, starts yelling at him, like trying to go at him. And after like 20 seconds of the rant, 
that this guy was having with with my my cell neighbor <laughs> i looked at him like hey dude are you gonna beat the shit out of this guy or can i go back to sleep <laughs> and so after spending 10 long and sad years in prison 10 years psych just kidding no don't worry about juan carlos he got out after like 30 hours because, like we said before, he was not doing anything illegal or wrong. Yes. Most people didn't actually knew that there was a legal way to get cannabis and all that. But that's, that's part of the activism or the activist work. Like, show people the way to, to be able to do it yourself. So Juan Carlos knew a lot about the cannabis industry, and he was trying to educate people while breaking the stigma of weed. And all of these things combined pushed him back into politics. But this time he joined a different and more liberal political party called Movimiento Ciudadano. The Citizen Movement. And in 2021, he ran as a candidate for state congress. So they called me back in November, December. And they told me, you know what, we're looking for citizens that are politically active. They're doing activism for social causes, and you seem like the right fit for cannabis, you know, and, and do you want the candidacy? So I said yes, without actually believing that that was going to happen. When it comes to making big decisions, there is often a special someone to help us make the big jump. My daughter told me, she's, she's a very wise little one, she's almost 12, uh, and she told me like that. If you're there, you're going to be able to do more, right? I love politics. Everything is politics. Yeah. We are doing politics right now. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only profession or social activity that actually affects everyone around. And, and what is sad about politics right now and why everyone rejects politicians is the fact that the people that has the will and, and the capacity of making good for everyone that has the ideas and, and, and the talent, they get tired pretty quickly of dealing with parasites. That was Tijuana politician and activist Juan Carlos Guerrero. Port of Entry is co-hosted by Natalie Gonzalez and Alan Lilienthal. You can listen to the full episode at kpbs.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next time on Midday Edition, we'll hear from other advocates working to get cannabis legalized in Mexico.